Welcome. Welcome here, everyone. This is a, a bit of an unusual and unique Sunday here at Stony Brook Fellowship. Um, we are, are meeting earlier than normal. Anyone else notice this is a bit earlier than normal? <laughs> That's right. I think all of our uh, music team volunteers definitely knew that we were meeting earlier than normal as they were here, even earlier than that, to get ready to lead us into some worship. Uh, and so I appreciate that. The reason for the change, uh, there is a method to this madness. We do have our Worship in the City community worship service happening at 1030 at the main stage at, at somewhere in the city. And so uh, I am involved in that service. And so what you're going to see here is not only an earlier service, it'll be a shorter service with a shorter sermon. Can I get an amen? There you go. And, and we're going to have a bit of an upside down service. I'm going to preach at the beginning. And I'm excited because you aren't tired yet. So this is, or maybe, you're, I don't know. I got all your attention at the beginning. It'll be great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to preach and run, though. So you're going to see me preach, and then you're going to see me skedaddle. And just don't take that personally. Uh, I'm going to head out to worship in the city, and I'd love to see uh, as many of you there as well, if you would choose to do so. So that is going to be what we have in store together this morning. And again, because the sermon is early, I think we're also uh, encouraging the kids to go to Children's Church a bit early. Is that right, Karen? Is that the plan? So we got a slide there. Kids, you can go, and you're going to have some children's church today. Slightly longer for you, but again, the service overall will be slightly shorter. We want to wish a happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Uh, I, I myself am a father, and so I'm looking forward to all the different handmade cards that my kids usually uh, have their mom make them make for me. And uh, they mean a whole lot. And if uh, you're looking for something to do with your dad, you could do a lot worse than going down to the Midway and getting some food truck food. That is a gift worth giving and something. Uh, I don't always look forward to the big crowds and the long lineups and the heat of summer in the city, but I do look forward to the food trucks. They're amazing. Uh, my family and I went down there yesterday and had some. We went to the tater tot truck. You're never too old for the tater tot food truck. But it is Father's Day, and we want to give our love and appreciation to fathers. And so from me to you, I thank you for what you do that God has called you to do. And I am very grateful for the relationship I have with my dad. One of the things I've always appreciated about that relationship is that he is, is, is someone who gives very good advice. And he'll, he'll listen well, and then also weigh in on any situation. And, and he has more life experience than I do. He's been in different situations. And, and still to this day, my dad is, is often the very first person that I'll call, especially when I have a difficult decision to make. And when the answer doesn't seem clear to me, then I'll go to my, my dad. He has taught me a lot about life. And so, of course, this is something that I want to pay forward to my kids. Though so they're a different age, and sometimes teaching kids about life looks very different when they're four as opposed to when they're 38 years old. And so just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my son Silas, who's four years old, is asking about my wedding ring. and Why do I have this ring on? And why is it on this finger in particular? And I said, well, when I'm wearing a ring on this finger, it means that I'm married. And he's like, wow, that's cool. And so he, you know, he plays a lot with the neighbor kid. He's like, you know, someday I'm going to, I think I've already talked to this girl. You know, we're, we're going to get married. And then he had this plastic Darth Vader ring. They just had the Darth Vader's helmet on it, and he puts it on the ring finger after I'm trying to teach him what this means. He says, I'm married now. And I said, well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't make you married. It, more, it symbolizes that there's other things that have to happen, and he doesn't listen to me. He just looks down and in awe goes, I'm actually married. <laughs> so that lesson was lost. We'll pick it up maybe in a year or two when he's ready for it. But, but I love this part about being a dad. I love being able to teach them about how the world works, 
um, and, and just give them the good advice that, that I can hopefully pass forward from what I have been taught. Now, in 1 Timothy, where we're going to be today, we come across a type of father-son relationship. And so I should mention uh, that we, we've been in the book of Acts. We're actually going to pause that for a bit. And in June here, we have a few uh, standalone messages. We're actually going to be in 1 Peter during the summer. But today we're in 1 Timothy. And we come across a, a type of father-son relationship. And, and Paul was this experienced Jewish teacher who had been taught by rabbis, and now he had uh, been turned to a Christian missionary and church planter. We saw him at the beginning of Acts as this Jewish uh, teacher, and then now he is a Christian missionary. And Timothy was the son figure here, was a hand-picked protege of Paul. He was brought along to lead the church in Ephesus in particular. And so there are some father-son or some mentor-mentee dynamics at play. And when we read these letters that bear Timothy's name, they are letters from his spiritual father, Paul, to his spiritual son, Timothy. And it's full of good advice, specifically good advice on how to be a leader in the church. But even amidst a book that's designed to be good advice, we have a few instances that Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying. So whenever you're reading your Bible on your own time and you hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, and you see Paul write, here is a trustworthy saying. This is going to be like a, a flashing neon sign. Say, pay attention. Something of specific importance is coming up. Jesus uh, and Paul will use words like this to highlight for us something that we need to pay close attention to. And so for, for a few minutes here this morning, we're going to look at three of these trustworthy sayings in 1 Timothy that Paul particularly brings to our attention. And before we do so, I want to invite you to pray as we um, ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, we, we are here on Father's Day, and we want to recognize all of the, the earthly fathers that, that inhabit this really important and crucial role that you've called them to. God, we want to acknowledge that there are some that have stressed in or broken relationships with their fathers, and for that we mourn and grieve with them. And for those who have uh, lost a father and who's not present with us anymore. But God, we also know that you are the perfect Heavenly Father, and, and that you love us <laughs> without condition, and, and that you value us beyond all measure. And Father, you have, have shown us your love and our value through giving of your word and, and just being able to lead us into further knowledge of you and how you'd have us live. And God, I pray that we would heed your advice given to us through Paul uh, and that we would learn with an open heart and open mind today and that we would worship together with you here and later at our community service on all spirit and truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the first trustworthy saying we encounter is in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 where Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so we start at the heart of the gospel. Paul affirms the message of the good news of Jesus and then also affirms how it relates to those who are followers of Jesus. He says Jesus Christ came into the world. And so this is a, a very powerful short saying. This is a, a retelling of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, was fully God, and yet he came down to our level and took on flesh, became Emmanuel, God with us. He moved into our neighborhood. And that's a, that's a profound understanding of who God is as revealed in Jesus Christ. But more to the point, Paul is saying that, that God didn't just 
come down to our level to be with us. He came with a specific reason and purpose and mission, and that was to save sinners. And so, so now, just in, in the span of one sentence, we're, we're ushered from the Christmas story to the Easter story, where that Jesus Christ, that Son of God and the Son of Man, would die on the cross to, to give us forgiveness of sins, and three days later, rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life in Him. This is the good news, and, and, and Paul packages it up in a very powerful statement, retelling of why Jesus did what he did. He really wants Timothy to remember the basics, to keep the main thing the main thing. And for us today, even though church looks vastly different, we also need to make sure that everything we do personally and as a church is also also keeping the gospel in the center. It's far too easy in the hustle and bustle of, of church life to get caught up in goals and programs and ministries and details and politics, whatever it might be. And June is a great example because I've been chatting with many of you about this, but June is, is, is really kind of wild here at Stony Brook. We had church camp last week, and now we've got two different services we're trying to harmonize this morning, and the next week we're going to be out at, uh, um, outside for our Sunday school picnic, and wonderful things, but just a lot of activity. And so what Paul is doing here for Timothy and for us by extension is this gentle and firm reminder that the good news of Jesus needs to be at the center of it all. God didn't just come down to be active. He came to save sinners. And the church, his church, needs to have that same priority. Jesus came to save sinners. And and what what really happens in this verse, which is quite fascinating, is that Paul lumps himself in with this group of sinners. He's an apostle. He's planting this church. He is mentoring this young pastor. And yet he puts himself in the group, not only in the group of sinners that Jesus came to save, but he puts himself at the front of the line when he says, I am the foremost. Now, again, this has been good for us to have some of this background going through the book of Acts where we saw Paul, then called Saul, do these things that he now understands to be deeply full of sin and shame, which was to persecute the early church of Jesus. He was present in overseeing the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. And then in Acts 8, he was active uh, in, in seeking out those who were the leaders in the church and then putting them into jail. This was what Saul was doing at the time. He was far away from God. And yet when we realize how far away Saul appeared to be, it shows us that no one is too far from the grace of God. In fact, that's the whole point. If we keep reading in 1 Timothy 1.16, just continue our passage, Paul explains it well. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, I am the foremost, and yet look at me now. I can stand here as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not on my own merit, but because of the love and the mercy and the forgiveness found in Jesus. That I was far away from God, but then Jesus came and saved me. And, and, and this dramatic conversion was an example, was a model that everyone can find this grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. That that's the reason he came. That's the mission of Jesus. It's the mission of the church. And if Saul, who became Paul, can be saved, then everyone can. No one is too far away from God. God has perfect, some translations will say unlimited, patience. And what a relief 
that is. So there may be some people you know and love in life that seem far away from God, and so the call here is to never give up on somebody like that because God is not giving up on them. And for those of you who were able to be with us on church camp, our speaker Jared Chamberlain last weekend used this a number of times saying, don't give up because God hasn't given up on you. A big part of his story was some, were some very dark years where he felt burned by the church and felt far away from God, and yet his testimony is that God never gave up on him. So don't give up on others. But of course, this passage and this truth is not just about others. What I, found, what I find fascinating is that Paul uses the present tense. It would make more sense to me if Paul were to write to Timothy and says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I was the foremost. Wouldn't that make sense? Is that what Paul says? No. He says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There is this deep understanding of Paul that he is constantly a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. A sinner saved by grace. That is, that is part of his identity. Not to demean himself, not to say the victory is not complete, but to highlight the dependency on the grace of Jesus. That nothing he is doing is on his own merit. He is still at the foremost in the need of this unlimited, perfect patience of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I still require much of God's perfect, unlimited patience. I understand what Paul means when he says, I am the foremost. I always need this forgiveness. I always am dependent on God's grace. We need to never lose sight of the fact that each and every day that is true for us as well. And as believers, the gospel starts with us. You could say that we are in the middle of the good news. It is not in a rearview mirror. It's not just up ahead. We are living in it right now. We experience it and need it daily. And then when we live this way, we can encourage others to do the same. That is our first trustworthy saying. Now, the second saying comes up a bit later in 1 Timothy 3.1, where it says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This is a good verse. I like it. <laughs> What's an overseer? Well, even understanding that the early church would be constructed very differently which means this could refer to Timothy as a pastor. It's likely the case. It could also refer to elders and deacons and other offices that we see pop up and be mentioned in Acts and later in the epistles of the early church. Regardless of that, while we don't know maybe in the specific position, it clearly refers to someone who holds an official position of leadership in the church, which would be most often that direct parallel would be pastor. So Paul is saying to be an overseer, to be a pastor is a noble task. And so I just wanted to make sure you all knew that. Now we're going to move on to the next thing. No, of course, I, I don't want you to tune out if you're not a pastor. Right, so how many of you are a pastor here or have been a pastor? There we go. See? So this would be, I would be wasting a little bit of my breath if I was just speaking to us, right? And I think when you retired, my hope is that part of, part of what was celebrated was the nobility of the task that you carried on for so many years here. And thank you for that, Earl and Carolyn. We appreciate it very much. Now raise your hand if you're on the leadership team or the spiritual life and care team or you're a Sunday school teacher or a youth leader or you're on the worship team or etc. Now raise your hand. Okay, here we go. See? Or you teach children's church. What? If you are in a position of leadership where you are teaching and encouraging and serving people in the church, then this verse holds a truth for you. We do not want to limit this 
to being a paid professional or just a pastor. We harm ourselves and our understanding of the church when we do this. Now, I'm not the only paid staff. We have another staff member who's playing hooky today, and that's Lisa. And you can, you can let her know I talked about her later. Maybe she's watching online. I doubt it. I think she's sleeping in. And uh, she's our church secretary. And a few months ago, Lisa had this um, pretty cool opportunity to speak to uh, the other uh, EMC administrators on, e- on Administrator's Day. And did anyone know there even was an Administrator's Day? I learned this too. I probably should have got her a gift. But she was invited by our head office to share and encourage with the other administrators in our, in our network. And that was an awesome opportunity and had a great chance to, at least invited me to read some of her thoughts ahead of time and give some feedback. And so I know what she shared, and, and she has the right of it. One of the things that she has learned in her many years here is how much this job, while it says secretary, how much of this job is true spiritual leadership. People call her, she's the first impression that she, that, that of, of this entire church is through Lisa. And, and, and often when they have an issue, they'll talk to her first, way before they might even come talk to me. And so she does a lot of counseling and listening and encouraging, and in many ways what we could call overseeing. We shouldn't lose sight of that. All of our administrators, all of our volunteers, you guys are doing a noble task. A noble task. Being an overseer in the early church was difficult because it usually meant you were a public and prominent figure during a time in which the church was being increasingly persecuted. It was a dangerous thing. In fact, we understand when Saul was persecuting the church, he was going after those he knew were in leadership. It made you a target. So I had a former professor who speculated that Paul needed to reinforce the nobility of this position because it was so incredibly dangerous. It was dangerous, but it was good. It was worthwhile. Why? Why is being an overseer noble? Well, being in Christian leadership is a noble task because you are part of something much bigger than yourself. You're cooperating with the work of God and with his kingdom. You're cooperating with that very first lesson we learned in the trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You're part of that. You're, you're, you're working with Jesus. He has invited you into this task. Now, I know I've shared this story before, but I still remember when I was working at an office supply factory and there was a middle-aged man there. All he did was work and party. I thought that's all he cared about. And he said one day that he was jealous of me because I was part of something bigger than myself. And it was a a significant moment because I I didn't realize that there was a desire there for him to want to be part of something bigger. It was also significant because even before I went into official ministry, it was a reminder that this isn't about me. It's not even about our church. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about being on mission with Jesus to seek and save the lost. That's why it's noble. That's why it's worth the cost. And that's why it's so worthwhile. Well, what is our third and final trustworthy saying this morning? It comes from 1 Timothy 4, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So physical training has some value. Not the main point here, but taking care of your body is a biblical principle. It's something worth doing. And what Paul is saying is that when we take care of ourselves here, it will have value for our physical health and well-being here. But godliness goes beyond that. It has eternal value. So what does Paul mean by godliness? I think we need to stick with the context. He makes a metaphor for us. He is saying bodily training 
has value for this life. And spiritual training or godliness has value for this life and the life to come. So I think there is this training metaphor that Paul invites us into. So godliness isn't just like feeling a certain way or acting a certain way. I think, I think we can define it here as spiritual training. So we have physical training on one side and spiritual training on the other. Um, during this uh, last year, Karen and I have made a concerted effort to be better at our physical training. And so <clears throat> we've kept it up for a long time. And we've learned a lot about why it's worth it. So when Paul says <clears throat> that has some value, I agree with that. Because when you're, when you're physically healthy, you can have energy. And, and you can have strength. And you can uh, and not be as sick as often. Those things are valuable. But of course, godliness has even more value than that. But one of the things that we have learned is what it takes to be, uh, have success in any type of physical or bodily training. And it's all about discipline and consistency and hard work. And so if we want to know about godliness or spiritual training, we need to know that those three things are still part of it. It's part of discipline, consistency, and hard work. And as I was preparing this sermon, I had a distinct challenge given to me by God. He says, okay, you have had discipline, consistency, and hard work and physical training over the last year. Now, do you have that same level of discipline, consistency, and hard work in your spiritual training? So that's the challenge that I feel is leveled towards me, and I want to share it with you. Do we bring that same level of hard work to our spiritual training? And so I want to give you three ways in which I think we can learn from physical training that will help us in this pursuit of godliness. Number one, what do we need to do? We need to make time. It won't happen unless it becomes a priority. And so for Karen and I to try to meet the goals that we set for ourselves, we needed to, to make sure that there was a time set aside. And this gets really challenging when it comes to all the busyness of having a young family and, and working at the church. Uh, but we've tried to flex and, and, and use this time so there's a, an hour in our day where we can be active at least three different times a week. And that would never happen, never happen if we didn't make some sacrifices to carve out that time. And so in our spiritual training, do we do the same thing? Do we try to fit in our time with God and reading his word and praying for others? Do we try to fit that in when there's a gap in our day? Or do we make time? Do we carve it out first as a priority? That's one step of discipline in our spiritual training. Number two, and we only just make time. We need to make friends who you train with. Make friends. Do that. One of the reasons I can say that we've been doing this for over a year is because Karen and I decided to do it together. Now, if I was just trying to be this disciplined and work hard in my physical training on my own, it would not have lasted. It just wouldn't have. It's better when someone is there to encourage you. It's more enjoyable when someone is doing it with you or suffering along with you. It's, it's, it's better when uh, someone is holding you accountable. And so much of what we do when it comes to our spiritual training is we completely individualize it. It's my devotions. It's my prayer time. And there certainly needs to be an individual component. But why would we try to do this on our own when we know that there's so much value in discipline and hard work in a group? So spiritually train in your small groups, in your discipleship groups, with your friend, with your spouse. Invite other people into this process and it will become more attainable. And the last step of spiritual training is to make good choices. Again, if we're looking at this from a, a lesson learned from physical training, we'll know that, okay, you make the choice to, 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 to work out and to be active, but there's also this whole eating thing that matters. 
And so much of the discipline isn't just in moving around and working out. It's in actually saying yes or no to different things that you would take into your body. And so when it comes to spiritual training, when do we tell ourselves yes or no based on discipline of what God has revealed to be what is best for us? What God would have us do in any certain situation? What Scripture has taught us to do or not to do? In fact, one of the values that I've found in any sense of discipline for food is that I just don't have a lot of areas in my life where I naturally tell myself no. And it's good just to say I choose not to. That's a good discipline to have. But of course, if it's only in eating and food and activity, that only has a limited value. Can we apply that to things that have more value? that are more important. We say, I choose not to do this because I know it is spiritually unhealthy for me. I choose to engage in this because I know it will bring me well-being in this life and the life to come. So, spiritual training looks a lot like physical training. And we need to make time, make friends, and make good choices. But the goal is not the discipline, the consistency, or the hard work. The goal is the benefit of the training. And when Karen had her surgery a few months ago, she couldn't work out for six weeks And she told me, I don't miss the workouts. And I said, amen to that. She said, but I miss the benefit of the workouts where I was, had more energy, where I could, you know, uh, uh, be more active, where I could do those stretches and not have uh, all these things that, you know, as we get older, our bodies (laughs) tighten up. I don't miss the workouts. I miss the benefit of the workouts. And that is the goal. It's not always about missing devotion. Sometimes it will feel like a duty or a commitment, or a, a discipline. And we might not miss that time, but we will miss the benefit of that time as God is at work through that. So godliness or spiritual training is superior because it aids us in this life and the life to come. It helps us now. This is not just for help later. When we are deepening our relationship with Christ through this spiritual training, when we have a greater trust in him, when we have a greater love for him and love for those around us, when we are, are burning with more passion for the fact that his mission is to seek and save the lost, that helps us now. But it also helps us later. In fact, this godliness is the only thing that flows past death. And so, of course, it would be more worthwhile because it always lasts. It goes forever. And so, in essence, we are brought back to where we started, the heart of the gospel, that all godliness is rooted in the good news and the hope found in Jesus. We conclude by reading one verse further in 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So are we willing to take note of these trustworthy saints? Are we willing to stay rooted in the truth that Jesus came to save sinners, ourselves included, each and every day? Will we remember the nobility of being part of God's kingdom work, something difficult but much larger than ourselves? And will we commit to spiritual training that will benefit our lives today and tomorrow and forevermore? Let's pray once more. Gracious God, we want to thank you for the words uh, that have come from Paul to Timothy and now to us today. It's a miracle that they have been preserved for us in this way, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that these words have life and meaning and substance for us in our own lives, that these sayings are still trustworthy and still true. God, I pray that you would bring us back to the heart of the gospel. Allow that to, to reach into our own need for grace and that we would just desire to extend that grace to others. God, I pray that you would remind us of the nobility of the task as we we serve in the church and we serve in other capacities to the world around us, that that as it costs us something, that, 
you would remind us of why it is so worth it. God, I pray that we would be a people of discipline, not just in body, but in spirit, as we seek to know you more and to be more spiritually healthy. Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.